The first of our two readings this morning is from Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 13. Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and he will commend you. For he is God's servant to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant, an agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also because of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give everyone what you owe him. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. And the second reading you can find in Mark's Gospel, chapter 12. Mark chapter 12, starting at verse 13. Later, they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, We know you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin, and he asked them, Whose portrait is this, and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As we sit, let's pray. Our Father God, we pray for the guidance of your Holy Spirit to help us to understand your word and to apply it in our lives. 
In Jesus' name, amen. Now, as Andrew has explained, this is the first of a series uh, at this 11.15 service on the first Sunday on the theme of God and government. And today we're going to look at the issue of the legitimacy of political authority. Now, how does the prospect of a general election in May next year grab you? Perhaps you are, you are indifferent or cynical about our political class. The shame of the parliamentary expenses scandal is still fresh in our minds. And we all know about the apparent hypocrisy of political parties in promising one thing and then doing exactly the opposite in power. And we're probably pretty fed up already by the political posturing and the PR spin that's already in overdrive. Perhaps alternatively, you rather enjoy the gladiatorial aspect of a general election. The political leaders slugging it out in television debates as if they were in a boxing ring and the points awarded for punches landed. Or just possibly, you're one of the very tiny minority of evangelical Christians in the UK who takes politics seriously and gets involved personally. So does the New Testament give us any clues as to what our stance should be towards politics? Now, I think it's essential to understand the context of the New Testament passages we're going to look at. It's often pointed out that the Roman Empire greatly facilitated the spread of the Christian gospel. In the first century, it was the ability of St. Paul to travel uh, extensively in Asia Minor, in Greece, in Italy, and possibly even as far as Spain. And that depended on an extensive network of trade routes and, of course, excellent roads, but even more on the famous Pax Romana. He could travel around. Now, St. Paul knew very well that Roman power was not without its flaws. After all, he knew very well that Jesus had been unjustly condemned. But he also knew when to use uh, the Roman administration legal system to get him out of a difficult spot. And for the most part, the Roman authorities were unconcerned about the Christian message and the nascent church unless it was thought to be uh, a cause of um, civil disturbance, as happened at Ephesus. But go on to the end of the first century AD, and things were very different. The Emperor Domitian instigated an official policy of persecuting the church. And most interpreters understand the lurid description of the beast in Romans 13, in Revelations 13, as St. John's allegory of the Roman imperial power. It was very far from a benign influence as far as the church was concerned. So with this background in mind, let's look at Romans 13, 
1 to 7. And let's remind ourselves of verses 1 and 2. Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. It's pretty unequivocal. Everyone must submit to the governing authorities. There is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Hence, rebellion against this authority is rebellion against what God has instituted. That's fine. If you happen to be living in a time of relatively benign Roman rule, or you happen to be living in the UK today, But what if the emperor in Rome is Domitian? Or if you are a Christian in Mosul or Karakosh and your community is overrun by the so-called Islamic State? Or if you are a Christian in North Korea? Or what if your government is utterly corrupt and self-seeking, which sometimes seems to be the default internationally? Is St. Paul giving such institutions unconditional approval? I think not. Rather, he is making the point that all human authority is derived from God's authority. So Jesus tells Pilate, you have no authority over me if it were not given to you from above. You see, a moment's reflection suggests that the exercise of authority is an integral part of human societies. The authority of parents over children. Authority in all manner of social and economic institutions, from school to business, from hospitals to banks. Now, why authority is embedded in human societies is a question to which we will return later briefly in this sermon, more fully in the next. But here we simply note that if the exercise of authority is integral to human flourishing, then rebellious conduct is likely to be destructive and harmful. Equally, where authority is misused, promote the good of the rulers, and particularly where it seeks to usurp God's authority, it ceases to merit divine approval. So briefly, what are the political authorities, as instituted by God, required to be and to do? First, you probably notice they are to be God's servants. In verse 4, he is God's servant to do you good. He is God's servant to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. And verse 6, God's servants who give their full time to governing. Now in those first two instances, Paul uses the word diakonia, which is exactly the same word that he uses of ministry within the church. Here is a striking comment from John Stott. Those who serve the state 
as legislators, civil servants, magistrates, police, social workers, are just as much ministers of God as those who serve the church as pastors, teachers, evangelists, and administrators. That's quite a thought, isn't it? So if they are God's servants, what are they to do? Now, there's a tendency for Christians in the Reformed tradition to emphasize the punitive role of the state in dealing with wrongdoers. And that is clearly emphasized in our text. But note what St. Paul puts first. In verse 4, he is God's servant to do you good. The language is that used of a public benefactor in a Greek city, a person who builds public facilities such as a forum or a stadium, or who finances public entertainments such as chariot races or plays. The political authorities are God's servants, but their responsibility is to serve the good of the people. There will be more on the required roles of the authorities in subsequent sermons. For now, our conclusion is that political authorities that fail to deal with wrongdoers or even actively promote or protect evil, and political authorities that fail to promote to pursue the public good are no longer acting as God's servants and hence can no longer expect our unequivocal submission. It is, however, of course, seldom so black and white. Governments generally are a mixture of good and bad, so our submission to them may have to be qualified and partial. So where do we stand? Unlike the early church of St. Paul's Day, we live in a democracy rather than under authoritarian Roman rule. And very briefly, I think we have three advantages and hence three responsibilities. The first is that the ballot box can be a powerful defense against corrupt politics and governments. Compared to the rest of the world, we have in the UK an estimable record of integrity in public life, and that explains the public outrage when corruption is uncovered. Our capacity to root out those who are corrupt possibly explains why our public life has remained relatively honest. The second advantage is that elections enable us to express our consent, or lack of it, to the way in which we are being governed. The first-past-the-post electoral system is far from perfect, but elections do provide a blunt instrument for distinguishing between political programs and hence shaping the ways in which our government deals with evils and promotes the public good. The third advantage follows from this. Democracy thrives on participation. The analogy is not perfect, but the model of God's people in the Old Testament is instructive. The law, or the Torah, which was normative for the life of the community, 
was both a way of life for the individual and a body of laws to be obeyed by the community as a whole. Both aspects were required. In a democracy, politics cannot be them and us. It is all of us together as citizens and members of the government. And if things go wrong, we too are responsible. If this understanding of the teaching of the New Testament is correct, then I suggest that a Christian cannot be indifferent or cynical or a mere spectator of the upcoming general election. In preparation for this sermon, I was not able to think of a single person in this church who is active in political life, even being an active member of a political party, let alone standing for public office. You see, we don't think of these things as ministry, as of the participants in God's, as God's servants. And I think that needs to change. But even if being actively involved in politics is not our particular calling, we should be participants, not spectators. I want to suggest to you that at the very least, we should heed the instruction of St. Paul in writing to Timothy. Let me read you these familiar words from 1 Timothy 2. I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. That is the very least, as Christians and as a church, that we should be doing. Let's pray. Our Father God, we thank you for the privileges that we enjoy as citizens of the UK. We thank you for those who are active in political life on our behalf as your servants for our good. And we pray that we will recognize our responsibilities to support and sustain that political life. In Jesus' name, amen.